Doomberg, are you familiar with the Summitville um, mining incident that happened? I think it was back in the, I think it was in the early 90s. Uh, Bob Friedland, that's when he got the nickname Toxic Bob. He had that gold mining operation up there in Summitville, and they were extracting the ore via cyanide heap leach. And the um, the bladder underneath the heap leaching pool uh, was perforated. And they, it, because of the high elevation they were at, they were having to use massive amounts of cyanide and they just nuked an entire section of the river and it was awful. But one of the things I learned from that was I feel like we have a tendency of way overplaying climate fragility, right? I mean, or like environmental fragility, meaning it is awful. We shouldn't be dumping cyanide into rivers. I, we don't want to see these toxic spills, but watching all the hand wring that section of river. And I know it well, Within two years, it was back, if not even sooner than that. I mean, the bounce back of it blew me away, right? You had dead fish floating to the top, just like you saw over there uh, in Palestine. But is, is, is that kind of what the hyperbole you're talking about? Is that what you're referring to when you're talking about uh, dilution, right? The solution to pollution is dilution. And, and, and it, would you agree with that, that, I, that we play climate fragility? Again, I'm not I, – I, I'm all about a clean environment, man. I'm all about less emissions. I, you know, if you're not, you're crazy. But um, is that kind of the hand wringing you're talking about, the hyperbole? Like, just and and if it is, why? Why? And if you agree with that statement, I'd love to hear your your thoughts on this. But if if you agree with that statement that we really overplay this climate fragility, why? Why is that? So I would say I'm partially in agreement. Um, Two years of a dead river is an ecological disaster, and it's, right, it's unacceptable. Right. Yeah. And uh, we can do better, and we should do better. And we live in a civilized culture uh, where um, best practices and safety engineering and failure modes and effects analysis and Six Sigma manufacturing methodologies all exist. And corporations do cut corners, and accidents like this happen, and it's unacceptable. And as I said um, at the top, like if I live there, I would be seeking counsel. Um, they have violated my home. I have to wonder whether the water is safe to drink. I happen to think it is, which we can get into. Um, but at the same time, um, most accidents are out of negligence. Um, and and um, having a couple of decades of experience in industry, accidents do happen for sure. Um, but, you know, there's a long tail in the chemical industry of small, mostly privately held, old chemical facilities that aren't back integrated that need these hazardous materials shipped in by rail or truck. And um, nobody would notice if they were shut down. And and the industry needs to have a hard look at, at that long tail um, because um, to the local environment and to the local communities, um, this is a very big deal. And the people that live by that river or fish in that river or enjoy that river for recreation were robbed um, needlessly. Uh, and Cymat is a very deadly poison and it's a very serious pollutant. And the incident um, was treated as such. Now, I will say, having said all of that, we have um, between um, nuclear waste and, quote unquote, chemicals, we have uh, conditioned the public. Well, the environmentalists have successfully won the propaganda war to condition the public to have a disproportionate level of fear associated with chemicals. So um, when I say the word chemical, the gut reaction you have to that word is pollution. That is the brand of chemical that the environmentalists have successfully worked to incorporate into our zeitgeist. Um, chlorine gas, for example, was a uh, chemical weapon used in the First World War. 
It is a dastardly chemical. You wouldn't want to breathe a cloud of chlorine gas. Having said that, chlorine is also responsible for purifying most of the drinking water in the United States of America. So um, chem chemical is not necessarily a bad thing. It depends on whose hands it in, it's in and, and what they do with it. Um, and so like everything, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. Um, we would not want to live in a world where, where chlorine wasn't produced. Um, this is, you know, people with pools, of course, chlorine. Um, derivatives of chlorine are used to, to, to keep their pools, you know, clean of mold and safe to swim in. Um, those very same chemicals in the wrong concentration, uh, in the wrong hands, um, you know, exposed to, the, to a, a general population in the wrong way could lead to very deadly consequences. So um, it all comes down to um, mature, uh, sophisticated handling of these materials. Um, we, as we said in the piece um, aftermath, um, the the U.S. chemical industry is a key element of our uh, modern society, and and we can't opt out of it. Um, we need it to live the standard uh, of living that we've all um, become accustomed to. Um, but there are very very well operated chemical companies with um, serious management that take all of the precautions necessary and cut no corners. And those types of companies should be rewarded. Unfortunately, Wall Street is partially to blame here too. On, on the rail side, at least, because um, they're, they're basically the, the four main class one freight rail companies are operating uh, two duopolies, um, you know, west of the Mississippi and east of the Mississippi. And they can, you know, um, shrink their workforce, um, engage in uh, stock buybacks and dividends and cut capital expenditures um, without consequence because there's no real competition. And the degradation and service to the chemical industry, as we described in the peace aftermath is um, something that has been boiling beneath the surface and is, and, and is sure to explode onto the front pages here in the next weeks and months as, as the government looks for accountability. Um, so, you know, long story short, um, the environmentalists have indeed won the propaganda war on the word chemical. People have a deep and oftentimes um, unsubstantiated fear of chemicals, uh, similar to nuclear waste or nuclear meltdown or nuclear power. The word nuclear, um, they think existential, right? This is the brand. Um, and so it is what it is. The chemical industry knows this um, and, um, and should be self-policing perhaps a little bit better. And, and the rail industry, which, which is uh, forced in their mind to move these uh, hazardous materials, um, probably could uh, do a little better to, to uh, uh, you know, invest a little bit on capital and maintenance and, and to keep these things a little safer than we have them. Okay, so that, that was something I want to ask you. You were saying that some of these facilities are, <clears throat> you know, past their useful life or outdated. What, what, what? Could the what should they be doing that would have? What, what do you mean by that? It, it made you made it sound like there was facilities that probably should be shut down or retired. Um, why? Sure. And how did that? How did that lead to this? Like what we? Because I mean, regardless of the facility, we still got to transport this stuff by rail, right? Ah, uh, but do we? Okay, so let's dive into the weeds a little bit because just this happens to be sort of in our wheelhouse. Um, the material at issue here: the five rail cars of vinyl chloride that did not leak and did not catch fire in the original derailment. Uh, but what happened here is three days later, um, the local emergency response teams became concerned that, that, uh, that those five rail cars might explode in an uncontrolled fashion, which would have been a true disaster. And so they decided to uh, move those five rail cars, put them in a sort of a, a pile off to the side, and then burn them in a controlled way to take the risk out of the situation. And that's the black plume that you see, which was controlled. It was by design and, and to the people on the ground, it worked exactly as they had hoped. Now, what is that material? As we said earlier, vinyl chloride is used to make PVC. 90 plus percent of all the vinyl chloride manufactured in the United States is consumed 
on site by the same company that makes it immediately to make PVC pipe or make polyvinyl chloride, which is then formed in a pipe later at a compounder. Um, there's only a, a few sort of legacy plants that make polyvinyl that aren't back integrated to vinyl chloride on site and need to ship it in via rail or transport it in via rail. I guess a ship would go over a boat. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and so um, the vast majority of the polyvinyl chloride made in the world is done at what we would call integrated sites. And there's a certain suite of molecules, phosgene being one of them, that the industry has decided they're just not going to ship anymore because it's too dangerous to ship it. And that um, it, it's, a, it's an intermediate. Like you, you don't go to Home Depot and buy vinyl chloride. Right? You go to Home Depot and you buy PVC pipe. Um, and the polyvinyl chloride that you would make from vinyl chloride monomer is a pellet. It's a solid. It's shipped in hoppers. It's very easy to ship. In fact, four hoppers of polyvinyl chloride were burned in the first part of this derailment, you know, along with two hoppers of polyethylene, which we describe in a piece, you know, rail car by rail car, what was in it, what was burned, and what does that mean? Or what spilled, and what does that mean? Um, and so the industry could just decide tomorrow that um, they're not going to ship vinyl chloride anymore. And if you have a polyvinyl plant that's stranded, we named one in our piece aftermath where, where we think this vinyl chloride was headed. Um, that plant's just got to shut down. Society has decided that's not a risk worth taking. Um, 90 plus percent uh, of the vinyl chloride industry would be unaffected. And I can assure you that nobody listening to this would notice. Um, and in the piece, the original piece, uh, Railroaded, where we described the original event and what was in those rail cars, we opened it by just telling the story of a derailment that happened 2.5 miles from Philadelphia International Airport. Um, and vinyl chloride was involved in that. It was something like 10 years ago. And um, a full tank car of vinyl chloride itself was vented into the atmosphere. And uh, the company that owned that tank car that um, derailed was the same one that was involved in this one. And we suspect, although we can't prove, it was, it was you know, um, basically the same situation here twice. And, um, and as we said in that piece, you know, 2.5 miles from Philadelphia International Airport, an entire rail car, some 20,000 gallons, the vinyl chloride was vented into the atmosphere, and they didn't shut down the airport. Tens of thousands of people came and went, uh, literally unaware of what was unfolding two and a half miles away as the crow flies, just across the, the river there in, in Delaware, just south of, uh, south of Philadelphia. And um, life went on. And so, you know, we, we can decide that um, if we're going to have materials like this that are a perpetual concern and a perpetual hazard to transport, let's just say you can't transport it anymore. Uh, you can't do that with all the hazardous materials that are shipped, and we go into that in the piece, um, aftermath, like chlorine and ammonia, which are big problems for the rail industry and the chemical industry together, and driven by our need for water for purification and, and uh, in the case of ammonia, for um, fertilizer and so on. But um, there are molecules we don't need to be shipping, and why should we? Um, you know, let's shut down that plant. Uh, let's move on and, and, and let the industry figure it out on their own and, and systematically big to small, take the risks that we're taking and work to minimize them. And, and, you know, um, rail might be the safest way to ship vinyl chloride, but that it only matters if you quote, have to ship vinyl chloride. And I don't think we do. Hmm. So <clears throat> let me, let me, let me take you, um, to spin this off a little bit off of this topic, but kind of along this line, um, the comparison to 10 years ago kind of got me thinking, and this is more of a cultural observation, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I And there's probably a lot of – well, not probably. There are a lot of factors feeding into this. 
But but something that I've noticed culturally is it, with each progressing year, especially over the last 10 years, the, the level of hilarity and outcry over every single thing that happens, it just keeps intensifying. Right? Like you said, 10 years ago, I don't even remember that event in, in Philly. Um, I'm assuming I probably heard of it at the time. But was it is it fair to say that there wasn't nearly the amount of hand wringing over that as there was this event? So great point. You almost certainly didn't hear about it. Um, other than locally, it wasn't a very big story. What has changed? Two things have changed: the advent and um, complete saturation of social media. Yeah. Um, and second, um, the by the polarization of our politics has become so extreme that every event immediately becomes a team sport gotcha moment for one side or the other. <laughs> right. And so in this instance, um, one of the reasons why we put out um, railroaded um, so quickly after we had just put out a piece on wind, because we had heard from a friend in media that both um, Jesse Waters and Tucker Carlson were going to do, you know, full blown Chernobyl uh, segments that evening on Fox news. And, and look, we were a pay, we're a, uh, publication that leans to the right and um, we're pretty libertarian slash, you know, um, conservative. And we probably have many subscribers who enjoy uh, their nightly Tucker monologues and that uh, we've enjoyed a monologue or two ourselves uh, to be fully transparent. But in this instance, we thought both were, um, were just wrong and it was unfair and, um, and it was causing unnecessary alarm and uh, anger and polarization uh, in our discourse and so we decided to get it out a couple ahead of you know a couple hours ahead of their show. Um, Jesse Waters went full Chernobyl, and um, to his credit, uh, Tucker had a bit more of a balanced um, segment. And um, but we wanted to get out to our subscribers so that they could read it, they could get our view as to what transpired. And so when you combine this proliferation of social media, the saturation of social media, with the polarization of our politics, it's a, it's a it's a um, destructive cocktail for our culture. And um, it's rather unfortunate. Um, it is what it is, I suppose. Um, there are many positive attributes of social media, but um, this is certainly one of the negatives. No, we saw so much garbage on Twitter. Um, that and, and by the way, we hesitated to write this piece. Let, let's be very clear. This piece was bad for business. Um, this piece um, was all downside and no upside. Um, and the last thing we wanted to be was the Twitter police on all things East Palestine. And now we've been tagged with every nut job hyperbole tweet that's been put on Twitter and, and we're, we're just not responding to it because that's not, you know, I got, there's not enough time in the day to beat, to beat back all of these, uh, these crazies on, uh, that are trying to take advantage of this situation for, for their own purposes. And so, uh, but we did it. It was fine. Uh, we joked internally. It was kind of like our contribution to charity. Um, and, uh, probably be the last we write about it, you know, the follow-up piece. And then we're back to regular programming for Doomberg, um, as this, uh, situation inevitably rolls off the headlines and people forget about it. Yeah. I, that, 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 that it's an extremely troubling trend for me. And it's one that's equally frustrating where one of the most damaging things you can do from a career perspective or an outlet perspective or whatever subscriber perspective is to tell the unbiased truth that, you know, it's just, it's dangerous. Like you said, you're going to tick off people on both sides. Um, and it's, it's really an unfortunate way. It's, it, you know, we've talked about this before, and there's a lot of people more articulate than I am that have, have addressed this. Um, but it's just gotten so tribal. I mean, it, it's just crazy. You know what I mean? Like, 
It, yeah. It, anyway, it's exhausting. Well, this, this very quickly dissolved into an attack on Joe Biden's transportation secretary. Yeah, right, uh, right, and, right. And look, um, we, we're the first to say – He was up there loosening the bearings on these wheels, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I mean derailments happen all the time. This is sort right. of a dirty little secret. Um, many of them involve hazardous materials. Some of them involve breaches and leaks and fires like we saw. This was a serious one, not to downplay it. Uh, for sure it was a serious one. Um, but like you also remember, like for the first week, um, this really wasn't a big national story after this happened. And I, I could pinpoint the exact moment where this jumped the shark. Uh, yeah, it's, when, it's, yeah. it's when they arrested that reporter at the governor's press conference. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because then it was like, what are they hiding? And, you know, um, the government is covering this up. In reality, I think that was a terrible mistake on the part of the security staff of the governor or the, whoever it was that arrested this. Uh, admittedly boisterous reporter reporters are supposed to, supposed to be you know um, loud and in your face and um anyway the, the rest of this reporter uh opened the sort of social media uh you know uh, just complete mania that we saw and um and so that's that but you know it, it just happened to fall into our wheelhouse and we knew once we found this document so the whole piece is we found this document on the epa's website which detailed what was in each car and what happened to it. And in the piece, we systematically went through all 24 rail cars and gave people some comfort. You look, I mean, the number one input into fear in a situation like this is a lack of knowledge. Yeah. So let's put some, let's put some boundaries on what happened. For example, um, a rail car full of uh, propylene glycol spilled into the environment. Bad deal, for sure. Propylene glycol is the um, near-majority component of de-icing fluid in the United States. So if you're on a plane in Seattle and it's a little snowy and you're about to take off, those trucks that come around and spray down your plane, they're spraying essentially pure propylene glycol onto the plane while you're sitting inside of it. It drips onto the ground, um, goes God knows where, and then you taxi up to the runway and take off uh, safely because there's no ice on your wings. So yes, a real car of propylene glycol spilled into the environment. Um, propylene glycol is also a food ingredient. You've eaten Way more propylene glycol than you know. Um, so piece by piece, hopper by hopper, tank by tank, we went through all 24, isolated it down to the five um, rail cars of vinyl chloride that were controlled burn three days after the event, and just put some boundaries on it for people so they could say, yes, okay, this is serious. It opens some very important questions about the chemical industry and the rail industry, but it is not Chernobyl. And um, calling it Chernobyl does a disservice to Chernobyl. Right. <laughs> it's yeah, I it's almost like a it, it, well, I'd call it a comedy if it didn't have such significance so you know, if it wasn't so damaging or so caustic. But um watching this increase, watching the level of hilarity over every single situation, right? It just I honestly it it is really it is really contributed to my just blocking out traditional news sites cuz it's just it's like mind rot. You know what I mean? Like what, what, what do you do with that level of hilarity and that level of just off the rails? I, I just, I personally find it extremely unuseful. Um, okay. So something else I want to get to pivot this a little bit. And, and I, I always like to ask you these questions because I think that you have such an interesting insight with the clients that you work with, just the angle that you're coming at this from. But looking at the economy now, obviously you got an inflation report today. Um, I, I just kind of wanted to hear your state of the union from your perspective, talking to your clients. 
where do you see, what are you hearing where we're at economically? Uh, you and I have not talked for a while. So recession versus non-recession, um, to be fair and transparent, I'm of the belief that it, it, it's a bit of a game of semantics at this point and that I, I kind of see it as being somewhat of a lock that we're officially in a recession by, I don't know, Q4 at the latest, in my opinion. So I'll put that out there for transparency. Um, but w- w- what do you see happening? What what impacts do you see? Anything that's surprising you, hearing from clients? I just kind of wanted to hear your state of the union on, on where, from your vantage point, we are economically at this point. Yeah, sure. Happy to. I would say um, the resolution of the European energy crisis um, is having second and third order effects that are relatively bullish for the U.S. economy. Um, let me explain what I mean by that. Um, the world has decided to walk away from climate change as a controlling um, um, you know, motivation for their behavior politically and, and economically. Um, the world has re-embraced coal in record numbers, um, China, Germany, Indonesia, Pakistan. Um, China's now buying coal from Australia again. Pakistan having been left out of the LNG sweepstakes and, and basically their entire grid collapsing has committed to never letting this happen again and is refocusing on coal. For a while this summer, the price of coal on an energy content basis was more expensive than oil, which had never happened before, yeah. which was really fascinating, something we had flagged. And, um, you know, thankfully also a very warm winter um, in, in Europe uh, as well has allowed them to escape the, sort of the worst consequences of their energy blunders. But the big headline is um, the world doesn't care about climate change. Um, the world is ready to roll the dice. Now, when I say the world, I mean everybody but the progressives of Europe and, and the sort of the coasts of the United States. Um, and maybe Australia and Justin Trudeau uh, thrown into the mix. But the, the two-thirds of the world's population has um, shed themselves of any climate obligations and are going full steam ahead to, crap, to capture um, the cheapest BTUs they can, which is coal. And um, that has a very positive effect for the U.S. economy in the sense that it has um, – that plus the weather in Europe has allowed the price of natural gas to collapse uh, in the U.S., which we wholeheartedly cheer. Um, other than for the natural gas producers, of course, um, for the rest of the economy, that's a decidedly bullish um, disinflationary or, or um, non-inflationary pulse. Um, 250 natural gas in the U.S. is truly a miracle, just to give your listeners um, a semblance of what that means. That's roughly $15 a barrel oil uh, on an energy equivalent. So the primary way in which many people in the country heat their homes and um, through which uh, much of our manufacturing sector relies to get both energy and, and a great source of carbon, um, that is now the equivalent of $15 a barrel oil. And that is, um, that is a, a headwind to inflation and a, and a tailwind to the economy and offsets some of the re- recessionary type things that you might be seeing, especially in the tech sector. Um, so uh, to the extent that the U.S. is on a mission to onshore manufacturing, to diversify away from China, uh, maybe into Mexico or in the U.S. South, and, and, and um, you know, this is a, a decidedly good thing. So the, the, the fact that Indonesia, India, China, um, Poland, Germany um, are re-embracing coal, uh, and since coal, natural gas, and oil can all be burned to produce electricity, and so they're fungible and their markets are therefore interconnected, um, that is causing the, the, the most superior fossil fuel, natural gas, to be extraordinarily cheap in the U.S., which is just unabashedly good for our economy. And, and then, of course, the U.S. has kind of slow rolled the uh, restart of the Freeport LNG export facility that was blown up last fall. 
and that has caused uh, you know a, a fair chunk of natural gas to be stranded here um, in the U.S. And then the last part, of course, is in the shale patch. A lot of natural gas is produced as associated gas uh, when oil is produced, and so they don't really have a place to put it. And so uh, all those factors have conspired to crush the price of natural gas back down to 2 to 2.50 per million BTU. $15 oil natural gas is an incredible tailwind for an economy and offsets um, a lot of other inefficiencies from, you know, um, government waste and so on. And then the last point is we're about to waste an awful lot of money, Zach, on the Inflation Reduction Act. And while I think long term this is terrible, um, in the short term, the tens and tens of billions of dollars are going to be torched in this fruitless effort to shift our energy mix to solar and wind and so on um, is going to create um, a pretty decent amount of uh, economic activity. And so I, I would question whether we actually see an official recession um, this year. Um, time will tell. But there's a lot of flows, as you know, and, and focusing only on one side of the flows can give you an incomplete picture. Yeah, it is – if for anything, um, it is an extraordinarily complex environment. And, it, you know, I put my views out there pretty unabashedly, but I regularly, uh, you know, add, add an, uh, an addendum to them and just say, look, I, I, there's so much conflicting data. This is such a unique environment. I think this is just kind of one of those environments that really underlies that whole idea of strong convictions loosely held. Yeah. Right? Uh, <laughs> I mean, what an economic crapshoot, right? Yeah, 100%. And, and look, I mean, um, when we saw coal trading for $425 a ton, um, which was more expensive than oil, even though oil can, can be burned, it can be refined, it can produce all kinds of useful materials, coal can only be burned, right? So you would think... Well, look, historically, coal had always been cheaper than oil on an energy content basis. But there's one attribute of coal that makes it superior to oil in an energy crisis. Um, you can buy as much as you can get and just stick it in a pile outside and burn it when you need it. Oil is difficult to transport, difficult to store. Um, and so if the world is in a scramble for BTUs, and we're putting out a piece um, probably Monday – uh, on this called the tentatively called the Streisand effect, um, the push for renewables in Europe as quickly as they did, which catalyzed this global energy crisis, is rebounding on them and causing the world to re-embrace coal um, uh, at levels that were unimaginable just two or three years ago. And so it's having the exact opposite effect. And all of the, quote-unquote, carbon emissions saved by Europe's foray uh, into um, renewables, if any were actually saved, are being spent multiple fold over as the rest of the world says, never again. Um, you can go ahead, you know, in, to the 5 billion people struggling to meet the base, the base aspects of the pyramid of, of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, climate change worries are a luxury of the rich. Yeah. And, and we've taught them one thing. Um, when push comes to shove, as Germany did, the West will scramble for every BTU they can get their hands on, regardless of cost, uh, regardless of... Uh, carbon emissions, and regardless of the negative impacts to the you know developing world that are left out in the cold, Pakistan's grid is collapsing because Germany scrambled to buy every cargo of LNG that the planet had. Pakistan had created its entire electricity grid, not, but its marginal electricity grid really heavily depended upon LNG. Uh, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, uh, pick your favorite, South Africa's electricity grid is collapsing, although for reasons that were years in the making. Um, so the rest of the world, India, you know, it's closing up pretty pretty close to Putin right now, last I checked. 
uh, China uh, and the Middle East, reaching uh, a very interesting sort of uh, detente here as uh, M- MBS and President Xi met in that uh, really historic trip in Saudi Arabia, which I think a decade from now will be seen as a, a true turning point. And so um, we have sort of provoked the rest of the world to ask themselves whether the um, livelihood and well-being of their citizens is more important than rolling the dice on climate change. And they have answered uh, definitively. It is not. What – one of the things that surprised me – now, and again, I, I know you'll know the answer to this. Uh, but one of the things that has surprised me is – and I'm assuming that it is – probably just an infrastructure issue would be my assumption, but why the pivot to coal as opposed to nag gas if it's not just an infrastructure issue? There wasn't any. Germany bought it all up. Western oh, Europe bought yeah. it all up. Yeah. And so just, now? Well, now doesn't matter. Burn me once. Oh, See, God. coal, I can make a mountain of coal. I could buy coal by the trail or the bar, the, the, the train, the, you know, the rail car or the barge, and I could make a giant pile. And I might burn it this year or I might burn it next year. LNG, natural gas, you know, it's very hard to ship because it's a gas. Look, in, in order of ease of shipping and handling, coal is way easier to ship and handle yeah. than oil, which is way, way, way easier to ship and handle than natural gas, which is why natural gas is still today selling for eight times the price or six times the price that it is in the United States. We have these wide arbitrage opportunities for the same molecule. Why? Because it's a gas. You have to you have to freeze it. You have to liquefy it. You have to put it in these you know billion dollar boats, and you have to create billion dollar receiving terminals for them. After you've picked it up at your billion dollar export terminal, coal you could dig it out of the ground. You could put it in a barge. You could float it across the water. You can make a pile of it next to your power plant, and uh, set it and forget it. So it's not just cost, Zach. It's risk. Yeah, and they're managing both. Do you, how permanent do you guys think this is? Like, like, like how, how much – is this a real – I mean is this a pivot? I, are we going to continue to see this trend? We're, we're putting the piece out this week, uh, this weekend or, or Monday. I, I do think that um, to billions in the world, climate hysteria is a luxury of the rich. And the vast majority of the world is not rich. They don't care. They'll deal with the consequences as they arise. Mm. And um, it's, it's happened faster than we thought. We always assumed that this would be how the, um, the sort of climate debate would end yeah. and that most, most people would stop listening and we would just handle the consequences. Look, I mean, if the climate alarmists or the, uh, you know, the people predicting you know, apocalyptic uh, consequences to the climate because of human carbon emissions, if they're right, we're screwed. Uh, the world's going to roll the dice. It's just the way it's going to go. And so I was joking. I was on a, in a debate um, on Jack Farley's podcast with this professor, um, Steve Keen, who's yeah. a nice guy. And um, we have wildly different views, but it was a very polite exchange. I respect his opinion, and I certainly uh, respect his right to have it. Um, and in, in his view, the world's coming to an end, and we need to um, nationalize the fossil fuel companies and ration energy immediately. And otherwise, we're going down uh, – we're, we're heading over Niagara Falls. And I said, well, you know, brace for impact because we're not doing those things. <laughs> yeah. and, and by the way, um, after this conversation, I'm going to go get that really great bottle of wine I've been saving um, because what's the point? I'll just have a nice bottle of wine on the way to the apocalypse. And, um, you know, it was a good time. Good to know you, Zach, and, and to everybody listening. Um, I don't happen to believe 
that we're going down this sort of irreversible, um, you know, uh, mass death uh, exercise because of um, CO2 emissions. But uh, he does, and many people do. And my point was, uh, nobody cares. They're going to roll the dice. And um, so, you know, what should happen, what will happen, it doesn't matter. Uh, India, China dwarf our carbon emissions. They're not going to stop. Um, and uh, so we're all in this together. Let's buckle up. If we're going over Niagara Falls, you know, I, I just hope we make it to the bottom. Yeah, I mean, we're going to do it. Let's get after it, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so no point saving the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right, man. You've got me thinking about which bottle of wine I'm going to pop tonight. Um, <clears throat> okay, so on another note, and I, I, I think I've had this conversation before. I think I had it with you, but just random thought that came up. Um, when you're looking at now, I, I'm obviously talking about the more modern ones. But what kind of emissions are these coal-fired power plants throwing off if they're equipped with these scrubbers? And and before we get into this, let me admit, I may have already said something wrong. I don't know a lot about this. Sure. But, but what – you know, we hear the horror stories about the coal. Then I hear some places saying these scrubbers have gotten really good. What is the real story on those? Uh, all of the above. Okay. So um, the most sophisticated coal plants to pick your German, you know – with all of the anti-pollution controls and scrubbers and and so on, are still bad uh, for the environment in the sense that the uh, CO2 emitted per kilowatt hour of electricity produced is just unnecessarily high. And it's especially insane that Germany retreated back to the coal mines with the speed and efficiency of the British at Dunkirk um, after having closed down unilaterally all of their nuclear power plants, which emit no carbon emissions per kilowatt hour. Of electricity produced. Um, the Germans saved themselves um, through this retreat to coal and by rolling the dice, you know, the whims of Gaia, which was sort of a, the last piece we wrote in 2022. Um, the weather gods blessed uh, Western Europe, and thankfully they did. Um, but for a modern, sophisticated, regulated coal plant, um, you're getting a lot of CO2 out of the pipe, but most of the other bad actors are, are taken out. Uh, in, the thir- in the developing world, um, where cost sensitivity is, is, is far more apparent, um, you do get a lot of, um, uh, of, of bad actors making their way out of the pipes, you know, of the factory, out of the, uh, into the atmosphere. And, and this is a shame, and this is real. Like, let, let's be very clear. We are not pro-coal. Uh, in our world, um, natural gas would replace coal. Nuclear power would, would undergo a renaissance. Uh, we would recreate a, a solar supply chain in the U.S. using natural natural gas, and uh, we would emphasize plug-in hybrids over full BEVs. This is our four-part Doomberg uh, strategy for energy that we published more than a year ago. Um, none of that is changed by any of these events. Uh, but the world um, is going to dump. Look, if, if you just burn coal without any pollution controls, you get you know, um, sulfur, you get mercury, you get all kinds of terrible for the environment emissions. And, and we're, yeah, we're going to see that in some of these developing nations as they scramble back to coal. That's unfortunate. Um, it's, it's, it's unnecessary. Um, if Germany hadn't shut down the nuclear power plants and they hadn't rushed so thoroughly into renewables, um, they would not have triggered the global energy crisis and had the need to soak up the world's LNG supply, which then shorted the Pakistans of the world uh, uh, of natural gas and forced their hand and made them go back to coal. And I can assure you, that the pollution controls in Pakistan are probably not the same as they are in Germany. Um, and so that's just, you know, this is the Streisand effect. The exact opposite of what you were hoping for has occurred. So there you go. 
<laughs> we, what, we, where do you, where does that term come from? The Streisand effect? What, what, uh, what it's it's the opening story of our next piece. So a fascinating story and it's just a bit of a tangent, but it's, I think it's worth going down. Oh, tangent in, away, my friend. In, in 2002, an organization sprouted in California, um, something like the coastal photography, whatever that this, this husband and wife team, he was a photographer. She was uh, a helicopter pilot. And this was in the early days of the internet, you know, dot com boom and stuff. And he decided to take a picture of the entire California coast, and and their purpose in doing so in five hundred foot increments. So they took like twelve thousand pictures and put it on the web for everybody to see. And then they did time series, and they were trying to expose you know people who are violating um, the law as it pertains to uh, development along the coast, and they're trying to document erosion and so on. And they won an award from the Sierra Club for all of this stuff. And, and one of the pictures of the 12,000, photograph number 3850, happened to capture Barbara Streisand's um, Malibu Cliff Mansion <laughs> right in the middle of it, okay? And it's just this opulent, you know, uh, and she's, you know, Barbara Streisand for all of her talent as a singer and an actress and um, is a noted philanthropist and a, a serious environmental activist and was one of the big backers of the Environmental Defense Fund and so on. And she's, you know, donated lots of money for... Um, global warming research, particularly at UCLA. And, and she has this mansion. And it, look, we would be the last to begrudge anybody of a 10 or 20,000 foot, square foot mansion you know, on, on the cliffs of Malibu. Um, but she was very upset that her home was uh, photographed in this way. Now, it was one of 12,000 12, photographs. I, I believe uh, uh, only four people, not her attorney, ever downloaded this picture. And um, she sued the photographer and his wife for $50 million dollars. Um, to have this picture taken down, which, of course, only served to have hundreds of thousands of people download the picture all over the world, and it became a big news story. And th if she had just done nothing, this picture would have disappeared into the universe of, of the void, right? Uh, but by trying to suppress it, she invited the entire world to look at it. And it became, you know, everybody likes a good hypocrisy story. <laughs> and so um, the, 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 the Streisand effect was named after that incident in her zeal to suppress the fact that, you know, she's this big environmentalist and everyone needs a lower carbon footprint and she lives in this opulent, it looks by inspection to be at least 15,000 square feet, um, you know, complete with pool and all the other, uh, you know, trappings that you would want. And look, again, I, I would say if, if you've had an incredible career like she has and you're a Becca millionaire or a Senti millionaire, go ahead and buy your mansion in Malibu. I, I don't begrudge you. Just don't tell the rest of the world they need to lower their carbon footprint. Um, <laughs> And so um, by suing for $50 million uh, to have this one photograph removed out of a collection of 12,000, um, that photograph became by far the most downloaded and viewed photograph in, the, in that 12,000 uh, collection. And so the Streisand effect literally means when you try to suppress information, it's like holding a beach ball underwater, it blows up on you. Uh, and in this piece, we are going to stretch, you know, semantically shift that definition to include um, the, the headlong rush uh, towards renewables uh, sparking this energy crisis in Europe has caused the rest of the world to embrace coal in the same way that everybody tried to download that picture after Streisand sued. And so um, it's having the opposite effect of what the environmentalist movement had hoped for, and it's, it's boomeranging back in their face in, in an unexpected but very pronounced way. So that, that's sort of the, you know, give everybody the, the preview of the piece we're publishing in a couple of days. What... what now this is a this is a broad question, so you can attack it any way you want to. But 
when I sit there and listen to you lay out my and and I couldn't agree with your climate assessment more correctly and the four things that that Doomberg thinks needs to happen. Um, <clears throat> well, I, I think one of the most frustrating things for me and, and confusing is when I hear a guy like you that really knows what he's talking about on these issues. This is what you've done for a career, right? Um, and you lay that out, and it and it jives perfectly with the way. I, I guess it's this. We have the current technology and the ability and the money to make those changes and accomplish the goals they want. But it, what is so confusing to me about their cabal, that, 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 that climate, ta- you know, the climatastrophe is, is one of the things I call it, the climatastrophe folks, um, it, 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 it's almost like the way that we do it is more important than the outcome. Right. Like it's there, there, there's so little common sense tied to it. When you lay out that four part strategy, I sit there. I mean, if we did that in whole, what would we lower carbon emissions by? I mean, again, if you, you know, there's, you'd have to do it around the world. It would take time and all that kind of stuff. But if we follow the Durm, Doomberg plan, we would hit all their stated climate goals, would we of not? Of course. Of course. Look, the fact that the marginal environmentalist is opposed to nuclear power is a priori proof that they're just unserious. Right. And, and look, we've said this before. There are no technical or financial barriers to radically reducing our carbon emissions while still providing a very good standard of living to the average human on this planet. Um, it involves nuclear renaissance. And the only reason why nuclear is expensive today um, we wrote a piece called Nuclear Waste where we eviscerated the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Um, here's what environmentalists have done. They have uh, ransacked the NRC, taken it over, really, um, you know, uh, uh, their whole objective at the NRC is to stop the proliferation of nuclear power and to roll back the existing facilities we have. Um, we haven't had a major new, you know, 40 years, pick your favorite. Like, it, it's obscene how many times they just say no to everything. And um, in our view, that, that federal bureaucracy needs to be blown up and start over um, because they are not, you know, they're just completely um, taken over by environmentalists. So here's what they do. They draw out the approvals, lawsuits, uh, you know, permanent appeals, takes five, six, seven, eight years to build a facility. They proactively design in safety beyond the wildest worst case scenario risk possible there is no beneficial impact for society worth even the smallest of risk on the part of the nuclear power industry. There are no solutions, only trade-offs. But in the minds of the NRC, um, there are no benefits. There are only downside risks. And they just say no to everything. And so what happens is to build a nuclear power plant becomes terribly expensive, takes forever. Because of the discount factor in your MPV calculation, it just becomes unprofitable if you have to take 15 years to get a reactor. You know, The money you spend at T equals zero that can't ever be paid back until at least 15 years, um, it, it destroys value for shareholders, so people stop doing it, which is the whole purpose, right? Um, and then the environmentalists turn around and say, we shouldn't do nuclear, because why? It takes too long and it's too expensive, <laughs> right? So they create the conditions that make nuclear unpalatable, and then they turn around and say nuclear is unpalatable. Fine, they've won. They've won the bureaucratic war. They've won the propaganda war. The nuclear power industry should be ashamed of itself for how terribly it has fought these two really important battles. Um, but to your question, the technology exists. We've run a fleet of nuclear reactors uh, in submarines for decades without incident. Right. Um, we know 
like France has gotten 70, 80% of its electricity from nuclear power. Uh, Ontario is basically nuclear and hydro. It can be done. Last I, I drove through Ontario, the fish didn't have three eyes. The, the rivers weren't glowing, you know, Homer Simpson style. It's a very modern civil society with really good highways. And when you pull off the highway and you, you, have, you go to the rest stop, it's clean and it's nice. And the people that work there are friendly. Like it's a normal Western developed society. And um, they get something like, you know, um, the vast majority of the electricity comes from nuclear power and, and hydro. And with a, a touch of renewables and a touch of natural gas, they have no coal. They don't burn any coal in Ontario. Um, for, it can be done. This is my point. And so um, the solutions exist. There are no technical or financial barriers. It is 100% political. Well, it, 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 so this is one of the – and I'm glad we had this conversation because this is one of the things, again, I, I have never built a nuclear power plant, nor do I know anybody that has. So my, my – um, you know, I'm limited as far as understanding that process. But one of the things I've not been able to wrap my head around is that constant argument. Well, it takes eight to ten years. What you're telling me is the reason it takes so long. H- how long does it take to build a nuke plant if you didn't have to deal with all that nonsense? Just look at the Chinese. They're building 50 of them. How long has uh, it taken them? Start to finish, three, three, four years um, per reactor. Why is it so long? What, 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 what is the issue? Well, I mean, you do you – do, look, it is nuclear, right? And you do want yeah. to be safe. And it's not just building the reactor. It's building the associated um, transmission lines and the yeah. infrastructure needed to absorb it. And you want to balance this all out. And look, I mean, if you're just going to be – slow and steady and build a new plant every 18 months and you get them in the pipeline. And the number one thing that an industry like nuclear power or fossil fuels, or frankly, the wind industry or the solar industry, the one thing you need as an investor is regulatory certainty. Even if it's going to take you eight years, if you know for sure it's going to happen, you can plug your nose, maybe use a little leverage, get some cheap capital, get some help from the government, um, and if you know uh, it's going to be eight years every year, then you just sort of do it every year. And then you, once you get through those first eight years, you've got a new one coming on. You know, like it, as long as you have certainty, you are what's known as bankable, right? You can get the financing when the time comes, um, so on and so on and so on. Um, the NRC in the U.S. in particular uh, randomly changes the rules on these industries and proactively creates uncertainty because they know the the environmentalists that have captured that agency know that banks hate uncertainty. And if you have uncertainty in regulations around an industry as important as nuclear power, people just aren't going to lend against it. And yeah. they have destroyed that industry, period. They have won. Let's be very clear. They have won. But to your question, if we got together and, um, you know, Doomberg had the power of uh, Xi Jinping in the U.S., we would be doing nuclear and we would wash away all of this opposition and um, at least in that narrow way, the, the, we would be better for having, uh, you know, Doomberg, the dictator in charge of politics here in the U.S. Well, and we would there would be an end to there, there would be a certain end to uh, energy shortages as well. Right. What, what, when we're talking about the <clears throat> when we're talking about the nuclear waste, I, I'm very familiar with how small it is in comparison and all that other kind of stuff. What are long term viable solutions for that? Like what 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 would be the plan? Um, and to be clear. I think the nuclear waste argument gets way overhyped, right? Way, way uh, overhyped. It's so much less material than people think. It's and- not that. Look, we wrote a piece that called Angels on, on a Pin. Um, let's grab all the nuclear waste that's ever been produced, 
dig a hole 300 meters underground, uh, encase this nuclear waste in, you know, several feet of, uh, you know, impenetrable material, concrete, pick your favorite, steel, reinforced, whatever, and shoot it underground and then wait and see who gets injured for eons. Nobody will get injured. It's right. a joke. The, the nuclear waste canard is the single greatest propaganda victory of the radical environmentalist, Malthusian, anti-human, progressive left um, that has ever been achieved. Um, and, and they recognized that they could not argue energy density, capacity factors, baseline power production, footprint of the plants, safety of operations. They couldn't argue on any of those. So they concocted out of whole cloth, fabricated the nuclear waste canard and have successfully um, stunted the industry, you know, in combination with their capture of the NRC and the media propaganda and, um, you know, and so on and so on and so on. There has never been a human on Earth that has been injured by nuclear waste. Not one. <laughs> Find me one. Right. You can't. Okay. We're using slave labor and cheap, dirty coal to make solar panels in China. We've got dead whales floating up the coast of, Atlant uh, of the Atlantic Ocean because of the uh, development of uh, offshore wind. Um, we, ha we have, um, look, oil and gas workers die all the time in the field. Um, there are oil spills. There are tanker spills. There are pipeline eruptions. Um, there's no energy source that can compare to nuclear for its record of safety, its reliability, its ability to produce reliable baseload, baseload power. Um, the nuclear waste issue, as far as trade-offs go, is complete and total nothing. And anybody who argues otherwise is either a victim of propaganda or a knowing purveyor of it, period. Yeah, yeah. No, that and that's been my assessment. I've just never really understood the argument. I mean, when you look at it, the safety record, like you said, efficiency, clean, I mean, you know, and, and you see it propagated all over the place. I get a really big kick out of every time I see some kind of climate, you know, type deal, with, with, with a nuclear power plant stack and all of that stuff coming out the top, you know, and you're like, well, that's, that's steam. It's um, water. Right? I mean, it's, it's cooling water. It's not, you know, it's anyway. <laughs> yeah. It's no, it's hilarious. So what else, what, again, it's been a while since we had you on, uh, what else, and it, you've been kind enough to join us here. We got about five minutes left and I, I don't want to burn up the rest of your evening by, I mean, you do have a nice bottle of wine to get to. So uh, anything else that we haven't hit that you think is really interesting, whether it's on the on this uh, topic or whether it's the economy in general or the markets, we, we, what else has caught your eye that you're keeping an eye on right now that you think we should be paying attention to? Yeah, I, I really do think that the um, the markets are underestimating the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act. And um, you know, we have a we have a, a, a pro tier for Doomberg where, um, you know, our, our premium subscribers get a monthly doom zoom webinar and um, we did our our february webinar yesterday on sort of the alternative energy landscape and uh, we we made the point that um what should be and what will be are two vastly different things and what will be uh is is a complete eruption of uh the sort of geyser of government spending in the alternative energy space and um like it or lump it it's coming and we're talking tens and tens of billions of dollars to um for wind and solar and, and to, to, to be fair, for carbon capture and sequestration and for, um, you know, uh, alternative clean fossil fuel technologies and for batteries and pick your favorite. Um, we might not think that's good policy. The policy has been decided and um, there's opportunity to be had 
for the wise investor uh, in this space. Um, we see sort of three potential opportunities. One is sort of investing in promotes. Look, I mean, we don't think the, these renewable companies are going to make any money but they're going to grow like crazy and they're going to be ESG market darlings potentially. And so as long as you know that you're participating in a greater fool's trade, um, that's one way that you could capitalize on this orgy of government spending. Um, the second, our more favorable approach for us is to sort of find the shovels to gold miner strategy where you, mm. you find, you find a uh, supplier to the industry that has something critical that these promoters need in order to demonstrate growth and they could capture a disproportionate share of the profit. That that would be a very uh, fascinating way to capital, capitalize on this. But again, recognize that you are trying to get the very best meal on the Titanic and make sure that you have your lifeboat um, before this whole thing sinks in three or four or five years. Uh, and then the last approach, of course, is contrast. Like what should happen and what must happen will eventually happen. It could take a long time. But if you were investing in coal equities at the beginning of this you know, past energy crisis, you would have made a potential career-making trade. Um, there will be such contra opportunities available once this this pulse of government access uh, makes its way through the system, either through you know shorting these things at the top or or buying uh, what should be happening um, at at dirt cheap prices. But uh, I would not underestimate just because of ideology, the sheer volume of cash that is going to be flooded into these value chains, and it, it is just it is what it is. You got to observe it. Um, you got to play the pieces on the board. These pieces are on the board, and that's what I would leave you with as a, as a final thought, perhaps contrarian thought to, to what most of what we've spoken about today. Um, this is what is happening. Forget about what should happen. Flows. Flows, flows, flows. 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 100%. Down to flows, yeah. One, one quick question in parting. Um, I, I find it hilariously amusing that we're jacking rates like this to tackle inflation, and we're about ready to s set off another orgy in government spending, which seems to be a big well, worse than that. We're jacking rates, which means we're not going to be uh, producing oil and gas because these companies are debt financed largely in the shale patch, which means we're going to see with China reopening and um, you know uh, uh, potential little pulse in uh, in oil prices uh, nation you know, globally, and so. Um, by fighting inflation, we might be sparking it if you think energy is a root cause. And so like, these, you, these markets are nonlinear. They're not controllable by humans. Um, hard as we might try, we, we never learn that lesson. And uh, so, you know, but the very good news, Zach, the best news of all is that uh, it leaves us with no shortage of things to write about, which is great for business. So there you go. There you go. All right, pal. And as always, guys, you can find him on Twitter, which I strongly recommend, at Doomberg. And then email. How do they sign up for your service? I, I just yeah. I, I realize this. I'm subscribed, but I'm not. I got to get behind the paywall, pal. Yeah, um, you know, it's. Uh, I got to join. I thought the we were friends, Zach. I thought we were friends. Uh, I did too, and I and I and I meant to. <laughs> I thought I joined. And we start talking about it, and I went, "Wait a second. Why am I not Zach, doing it for you? Send me a text with your email, and we'll comp you." Um, no, <laughs> so we're actually at Doomberg T on Twitter. Um, oh yes, somebody was squatting on Doomberg, although we have recently purchased it. Um, Break some news here, but we're just going to squat on it so no one else grabs it um, because at Doomberg T is now like sort of what we've been for these two years. And you can find all of our work at doomberg.substack.com. Um, if you're cheap and you only sign up for the free, like Zach, um, you, you will at least get um, the first third of all of our pieces. We write to a, to a break point to try to entice you to come over the paywall. Clearly hasn't worked with Zach. Um, but if you are um, willing to pay for our service, I, I would say – that we are 100% subscriber supported, um, which gives us complete editorial freedom to be as provocative as we uh, choose to be, which has been fun. It is the work of our lives. We're incredibly grateful for our paying subscribers. They have allowed us to do this for a living, uh, to basically achieve our dream. 
and uh, it's been the work of my life. It's been an amazing two years. Zach, um, always a pleasure to come on. Uh, I know this was uh, it came together on, on short notice, but I was, I was happy to uh, be called out of the bullpen when you needed me, and it was a great pleasure. Well, thanks again, pal, and I can't can't appreciate can't say thank you enough for your availability. And just because just because of this conversation, I will not be sending you that text. I will be <laughs> paying to be behind the paywall with everybody else. So I would encourage everybody to go out and do the same thing because well, and 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 you know that's why these shows I think are such a good advertisement for your guys' work. The reason I want to have you on is because of these insights. And that, that's why I was sitting there going, wait a second, why am I not behind the bloody paywall, right? I, I spend, you know, <laughs> I have you on the air for an hour, but I'm not behind the paywall. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, so anyway, well, thank you. Change your business, Zach, uh, preemptively. Yeah, yeah, there you go. All right, well, thank you guys so much for logging or, or signing on and listening to this. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Doomberg, thanks again for joining us, pal. We'll have to do this again in not too distant future. Anytime, brother. Great. Have a great weekend, and um, I hope your 2023 is off to a great start like ours is. Yeah, you bet, man. I'm not complaining. All right, you guys. Well, hey, have a great one. Thanks for joining us. And as always, we'll be back next week. Got uh, Should have two more interviews dropping next week, so you're going to want to pay attention. Have a great weekend. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.